Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. I am, of course, Alex, your host, and today we have a rather unique episode for you. I would like to think that I am a rather informed individual when it comes to finances and all things finances, but really, I do have a blind spot, and that blind spot is military finances. I have never been in the military, never really been in the family of someone in the military. It's just a subject that I've never really come close to. So I had a couple friends reach out to me over the past couple weeks and ask that I do a military finances episode. However, since I am deficient in that, I needed somebody to talk to. So today we have Drew and Emily from the Thousand Days Defy podcast. Now, Drew is currently active duty in the military and Emily just recently transferred out of federal service and is currently a veteran, which makes them fantastic guests to have to talk about military finances. Now, before we bring them on, I do not typically dedicate my episodes. However, this one is going to be an exception. This episode goes out to the men and women of the 2nd Battalion, 156th Infantry Regiment of the U.S. Army. So, with that out of the way, Andrew, Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Oh, it's no problem at all. I'm so glad to have y'all here, especially to have a veteran, active duty. It seems like we got the perfect people we need to talk about this subject of having some combat finances. Yeah, we'll do our best. <laughs> well, of course. But I tell you what, before we go into that, let's talk about your podcast a little bit. So y'all run the Thousand Days to Fi podcast. Do y'all want to go into that a little bit and what y'all cover there? Yeah. So Andrew and I are parents as well as, you know, veteran and active duty military. And so we have kind of this balance between trying to kind of grind out a job that requires a lot from us, but then also give enough resources and time to our children. And so we realized kind of as we're trying to balance all of this, whenever I was forced out of the military due to a medical problem, that there was kind of this unique opportunity to not just see a silver lining, but to make like a radical change that could be a really wonderful one. So we decided to kind of look at our finances and determine if there was a way that we could potentially spend more time with our kids and do more of what we wanted to do. And not only was that true, we could actually become totally financially independent within just shy of three years, which is where the thousand days comes from. And so that thousand days to five was really determined because we identified that if we were to get our debt level reduced, then we could live on our passive income streams exclusively. Andrew could get out of the military and then I wouldn't have to worry about getting another job, which can sometimes, you know, be stressful and not a known thing simply because I have a disability that's going to impact me for the rest of my life. So it's nice to be able to have kind of that place where we can focus on our family, I can focus on my health, and we can kind of really evaluate all the things we want to do besides the job. So that's what the podcast is about, just bringing people into that story and walking them through kind of how we got our debt levels like as little as we did, what we're doing to get rid of the last little bastion of debt, and then also how we got our passive income streams. We know our, our goal, our specific goals are not unique to us. And so that's why we felt kind of it to be necessary to spread our journey, I guess, in order to see if we can, if anybody else can garner some lessons learned and apply it to their own lives. Well, alrighty, that's certainly something that I try to do. I bet y'all do it a whole lot better than me. I'm not really on a clock yet. The fact that y'all are right there a thousand days, you know, three years away, that is a feat in and of itself. And in the pursuit of that, a question I have just on y'all's history before we really get into the meat and potatoes of combat finances. So y'all were mentioning that y'all have passive income streams that I assume y'all have been working on for quite a while here. While we're on the subject of combat income, or rather combat finances, 
Did y'all start making some of those passive income bits while still both of y'all active duty? And what kinds of things were y'all able to do to generate that passive income while active duty? Yeah, so there's a couple things here. First, you know, you can start to really look at kind of your typical investment vehicles, such as your IRAs. For us, we didn't do 401k because we're not Guard or Reserve. But you have that, and then you also have access to some pretty great rental opportunities because you're moving around all the time. You can purchase you know, different properties for fairly cheap because of the VA. There's a maximum with that, but also you don't have to have a minimum down payment. So there's a bunch of benefits that you can have there. And then as you move on to the next place, you can rent it out to folks that are coming into that duty station, which, you know, cause they're typically military towns. And so they're always looking for a nice rental, which is convenient. So for us, you know, we had three homes at one point where we were doing that. And that was really beneficial for us selling that most recent house. Also, you know, we sold that at 20% above what we bought it. And then we were able to put all of, you know, that towards other debt and also towards uh, renovating this home, which is great. So all that's paid with cash. We just don't have to finance much. And I would say that that's been pretty big benefit for us is being able to do that. And then really most recently is that as I was transitioning out of the military and realizing that I had a very specific skill set that I could provide, I got really great advice from Andrew's mom, actually, that was saying either charge what you're worth or give it away for free, right? There's like two options. Don't allow folks to give you less money than what you're worth. And so what I realized when I was first starting is I needed to kind of have proof of concept for some of the things that I wanted to do. And so either going in and, and doing that pro bono to get my name out there, or after that, telling folks that, hey, I can't accept this amount, but I will accept equity in your business. And so accepting equity in a business is really great if you have a skill set that can help that business to succeed, because then you're getting equity in a business that they either sell or a profit share, which is something else that we could do, in which all of a sudden now I'm starting to get a lot more money and that becomes passive over time. I had a lot of initial upfront effort, but then once I'm kind of done with that project, I'm still getting the benefits of everything that project helped to set up. Okay. And just to clarify, were you doing this while active duty or that was just strictly starting after you were transitioning out of the military that you realized you had the specific skill set that people needed. So you went out there and either worked for exactly what it was you were worth or maybe a smaller amount. And then you took some equity in the business. So the real estate ventures, as well as utilizing all of the financial tools, traditional financial tools that were offered to us, as well as some of the ones specific to the military itself, we started using pretty much immediately upon entering active duty. We started taking advantage of those and seeing return on those items. It wasn't until I was transitioning you know, out, Emily suffered her injury and was in the process of transitioning out that she started to, well, really had a little bit of time for herself to explore some of these. Yeah. So about a year prior to being out of the service, I was told that I could no longer fly. And then shortly after that, I was put into a process that was going to take six to 10 months to get through. But we all knew that the conclusion of it would be be leaving the service. And so during that time, you know, I was given the opportunity to go and do what they call TAP, which is a transition program to help military members as they're leaving the service. And then also because I have the disability, there's a couple other things that other classes that they let you attend. It's all pretty fast and furious because normally if you're a military member who's retiring, you have up to two years to take some of these classes. But, you know, I had about six months. However, I knew pretty quickly that I wanted to get into business for myself. And so because I knew that I was really able to take advantage of that full six months, and then also the way it works whenever you're exiting the service, if you have any leave built up, leave being like vacation days, then you can go ahead and exercise all of those as one big chunk at the end of your time in service. 
And so those last few months where I made this transition, but it happened very, very quickly. I had my first clients prior to leaving the service, but it wasn't until the very end of my service that that became an opportunity. So as far as your specific business ventures, that you sort of, it sounds like you got it set up or at least started laying down the foundation before you fully transitioned out. And then you started the actual work while you were out of the service. Yeah, that's true for me. And then, you know, we had, like I said, an extra, what, 10,000 like per house, yep. a little more, 10, 10 with one, 18,000 with the other, but we were probably clearing 10. Yep. You know, between our two houses, we had an additional 20,000 that was coming in with the homes that we had. So that, you know, was pretty beneficial. And that was prior to me leaving the service at all. And then also with those different investment vehicles, we got pretty much everything squared away in terms of like the 529 for our kids and also like our Roth IRA, which is going to be something I talk about with the TSP because that's a golden opportunity with the military that other folks don't have. And so those kinds of things, we were able to just get some of those other funds totally funded so we could start to focus on what we wanted to do with all of the other extra income that was coming in. And so I would say that it wasn't really until I left the service that it became like, oh, we can do this, <laughs> right? Like we can be financially independent. You know, up until that point, we were just kind of getting ourselves set up. But once that foundation was laid, I mean, it was just really rock solid. Gotcha. And you teed me up for, I was saving this for later, but we have it here. So a piece of advice I see often, so I live and breathe this financial independence stuff. I'm always in the articles, listening to podcasts. That's how I discovered you guys originally. By the way, loved your episodes. Hope it continues. But what do y'all think about a piece of advice I see every now and then is, hey, to anyone in the military, active duty, buy a house in every duty station and rent it out. I see several articles arguing for it and several arguing against now, I know for real estate, it's typically a very personable kind of thing. You're either really good at being a landlord or really not good at being a landlord. <laughs> but as people who are not only veterans and or in the military currently, but as people who have had rentals at what seems like at least several duty stations, what are y'all's opinions on that advice? Right off the bat, before you start going in investing, period, you need to look at your current debt to income ratio as it is. Don't take on more than you're comfortable with. If at any point it starts to feel uncomfortable, you're probably taking on too much. You don't want to be at a position where you can get overextended. And that's very easy with multiple rentals. If all of a sudden all of them are unrented, you're on the hook for all of those mortgages. You don't get any special deals because you're in the military that you're still owe all those mortgages. So I would say that I agree with that 100% that you have to really look at your own risk tolerance as well as you know how much extra money you have because you're creating an emergency fund not only for yourself and for your own family, but also for those investments in the event that they sit idle. And then if they are idle for a little while and they need to have additional repairs done to them when people are ready to get back into them, do you have that money? Otherwise, it's going to become a money pit pretty quickly. And how we've approached our real estate is the money that we make off of those properties, I would say 90% of it, if not more, we reinvest into a fund for those properties themselves, just for the purpose of annual repairs between renters, having to cover the mortgage when renters are unavailable for periods of time and those types of things. Because we approach each of these properties not as quick sale, quick turnover sales. We're not flipping anything. We're keeping these properties for 10, 15, 20 years at a time. And that's kind of how we're approaching it. And so for the payoff down the road. 
Right. And if, you know, a lot of times what you'll see is in our opinion, kind of the smaller homes end up renting a little bit better and you have a smaller mortgage. So the mortgage for my house, you know, kind of in mid South type area is really super cheap. Right. So if I was to compare that against like, let's say California, the mid South is much cheaper than the West coast. And so I'm able to get a home with a mortgage that's 400 bucks, even with escrow and insurance, or, you know, like total escrow for taxes and insurance, you're looking at about $600, but I can rent that home out around $1,000. So it's nice because I can put that entire $1,000 into the home. I can have some of it going towards, you know, kind of like those future repairs and things like that, or I can put all that money towards the mortgage and I can pay it down faster. So I'm letting them build the equity into it. And I also have this asset that's then paid off if I wanted to do it that way. Otherwise I can just let them build that equity slowly over time. And then when we're ready, we can take that and put it into another investment property into the next place once you're ready to sell it, which is a pretty decent strategy. Probably the best strategy that I know of for folks that are thinking about purchasing a home that you can do it like we did it. And it's, you know, successful, but we're not making buku dollars. Like the crazy dollars that I see people making are when they go into it together with partners that are also in the military and they buy... You know, so for perfect example, since I'm pilot, what we call it the pit pad. So pits for pilot training. And you go in and you buy this really beautiful home where different folks uh, that are coming into the training scene can kind of go in and live in this communal setting where they're going to benefit from that communal setting because they're in the training environment. But it's also a really nice setting. It's not some rundown, you know, motel or, or base housing. And there's also rules that they have to pay the minimum is being offered for military housing. So that way you're not competing with them directly. And so a lot of times you end up actually charging more than you would normally be able to get if it was just out for rent in the regular market. So you're at a little bit of a risk because you're marketing specifically to those folks. Technically, you know, it's housing discrimination if somebody else was to try to rent, you know, want to rent it. So you have to look at those kinds of things and recognize that there's some limitations and you have to be prepared for kind of the legalities of those also going into something with a partner. But a lot of times what these guys end up getting is hundreds and hundreds of dollars coming in every single week and they end up making three, four, five times what the mortgage is on any one of these homes. And then pretty soon at the end of two years, they're sitting on a million bucks in profit. So I've seen that happen. You need to have a lawyer and you need to have, you know, some extensive business plans with a plan like that. Yeah. But, you know, it is, it is something that's available to you and you're aware of the market and you're aware of the opportunity, which is kind of cool. So not to be wishy-washy, we encourage it if you can. So We'll just give you the political answer of it depends. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, no, but, but we're advocates. But no, we're personally though we're advocates of it. You have to like anything before you go into any type of financial venture whatsoever. You have to look at your own finances and look what the risks and rewards are, and evaluate your own tolerance before jumping off. And then understand what you can manage. For instance, we hired off. Property managers. Property, property managers. Every time. Yeah, I don't manage anything on my own. No, and so getting those good recommendations, when you get hooked up with a good property manager, they make your life so much easier and they're totally worth it just for that peace of mind aspect of everything to make everything run on autopilot, which is great because you know we're still active duty in the military, which is a demanding job as it is. And so our ability to manage multiple properties at the same time while doing our regular job can become overwhelming very, very quickly. So yeah, my opinion is definitely that 10% is worth it. If you have somebody who's taking care of all of the calls, all of the issues, they're coordinating between pest control and the repair guy and the lawn guy and any issues that may come up that need to be 
like insurance coming out and trying to schedule somebody to repair something after a storm, you know, any of those kinds of things, it can just be very overwhelming with your time if you don't find a good person to help you manage it. So if you're local, then it might be worth it for us. You know, that's kind of the only caveat is having a good property manager. If you're going from place to place and you're still continuing to move yourself, that that's, you know, integral to success. But a lot of people do it without one. So it just kind of depends. It depends on your career field as well. As officers, as rated officers, we were moving around every two two to three years or so. If you're in a different career field, a lot of enlisted are in this boat where they will stay at a single duty station for sometimes upwards of 10 years prior to moving if they're if they're able. So people in that type of situation might be able to manage properties themselves. Yeah, and keep that extra 10% per month to themselves. Exactly. Yeah. So everyone's situation is different. Personally, we are advocates of it. So y'all had said about a minute ago, it depends. But what I'm hearing is yes, but with a couple asterisks. Yes. You just got to look at your own situation. Exactly. Everyone's finances are a little bit different and their life goals are a little bit different and their life circumstances are a little bit different. And so you have to look at all the pieces in the puzzle before jumping off into really, I mean, real estate is just one example, but any real financial venture whatsoever. And also I think that like investment vehicles, it's good to have you know, diverse portfolio, obviously, but also you enjoy the process more if you enjoy the vehicle. So I would say that we're good at real estate. We enjoy real estate. We enjoy moving around. All of those kinds of things contribute to the fact that we like to use it as one investment vehicle. And you hit on something else pretty good there, Emily. So in terms of diversifying, we're able to diversify even within our own real estate market because we move around and can be in different real estate markets as uh, throughout the career. So that's the other aspect of it. If you're buying multiple homes within the same housing market, or are you buying multiple homes in different markets across the country? Well, alrighty. I think we've gotten real estate well covered. Sounds like it is a good (laughs) idea, but there's definitely, definitely some asterisks. But Absolutely. Real estate, I think in any scenario is a fantastic way, not in any scenario, in general, in most scenarios can be good if you do it right. Absolutely. Like if you're, if you do it right, I think it's, it's a benefit. Now let's transfer over a little bit. Let's assume for a minute that every single non-US service member hasn't turned off this episode yet. Could you go into just at a high level, what is the TSP? I know a lot of people say it's just, oh, it's the government equivalent of a 401k. But with that being understood, just general, from what I understand, there's like four or five funds, period, that you get to choose from. So high level overview. Yeah. So that's exactly what I was going to say was that it's the United States government version of a 401k, but it is very similar to that. You go in and you manage different funds or you you assign a fund for your money. So whenever you first get into the military and you say, yes, I want to elect to get into a TSP, you basically just contribute however much you want. There, like The matching thing actually kind of came in recently. So it was like the 401k to a point until BRS, which is the new retirement system came in. So prior to that, you would just contribute. There was no matching. There were funds and then you could grow depending on the fund that you put it into. And there's actually much more than four. There's you know, probably four or five just inside of the life cycle funds. So just to kind of keep it very broad strokes there, based off of your, you know, preferred level of risk, they have more risky or less risky, just like you would find anywhere else. You have tech-based funds, you have, um, you know, like overseas funds, you have S&P, you have, you know, a, a bunch of different types that you can go in and look at. Each one of those actually has a prospectus, just like you would expect to find, which tells you what percent you can expect to earn in terms of your interest. 
a lot of people don't realize that when they first elect to get into TSP, that it goes straight into the government fund. Government fund doesn't even really grow past the rate of inflation. And so people will contribute to a TSP and they think that it's not beneficial because they're not seeing any returns, which is really too bad because they don't realize that they need to go in and actively manage it, deciding how much money they want to put in towards what fund. And what's great is you can choose as many funds as you want and you can allocate whatever percentage you want to it. You can only contribute to it while you're in the service. But let's say for me, once you're outside of the service, you can still actively manage it. You just can't contribute to it anymore. So I can't contribute to my TSP, but I can go in and I can change my funds. So for example, I'm in a life cycle 50 for the majority of what I'm investing in. So life cycle 50 is one of their more aggressive funds because it's the idea that I've got 50 years before I'm looking to retire. So I want it to be aggressive and it's got a spread that I like. They've got other ones like a life cycle 40, 30, 10, they've they've added a couple others. And so the smaller the number you're saying, hey, I want to be able to retire sooner. So please don't be as risky with my money. I want to have some of it even in a downturn. And so it's nice because you can go in and you can look at each one of these. So anything from like, you know, Fortune 500 companies to, like I said, tech-based companies, or if you're trying to look in like currencies, like you can look at like, you know, foreign currency. So it's really quite diverse and you can really get as risky or as safe with it as you want to. So it does sound almost exactly like a 401k. I guess I've spent a little too much time in financial independence forums because all I keep hearing about is a bond fund, an S&P 500 fund. So this is the first I'm hearing of there being all these individual, really specific ones. And just a point of clarification, I'm assuming the life cycle funds are the military slash government equivalent of target date funds. But instead of there being a 2050 fund, as in you're trying to retire at 2050, you have a life cycle 30 fund, meaning I'm trying to retire in 30 years. Exactly. Okay. So I just want to make sure I was holding on tight there. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And they're very similarly worded, but they're slightly different. And I mean, really, I'd have to kind of jump in. I haven't been very good about watching it this year simply because it's been a bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't, I can take money out, but I can't put money in. So I just like to let it sit and grow and then look at it a couple times throughout the year. Uh, as opposed to getting freaked out and thinking about pulling anything. So if there's anything that's different, I'll be sure to provide that to you. But yeah, that's the gist of it. The thing that's really cool about TSP now is that you get employer matching, which is really where kind of the 401k side-by-side comparison comes in. That is new as of 2018. Okay. And then something just in case I have some government employees listening to this that are a little twitchy about not being able to add to it after they leave government service I assume there's some kind of way that you can roll over TSP funds to what I would assume would be an IRA. That's right. Yeah, you can roll it into any other equivalent investment account. Okay. I imagine you get booted from all the government funds and have to find a civilian equivalent. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's like listed, like I think even like with a 401k, if you have a 401k, you can say that I want to roll all of this over into the 401k and actually assign the money that you earn from that to whatever fund you want inside of your 401k. I'd have to double check that because I haven't looked at all of the withdrawal rules. But yeah, I mean, it's as long as it's going into like an, an equivalent investment kind of vehicle, it'll allow you to to pull it penalty free. Penalty free is the is the, yeah. key, is the key part there. Definitely, because you definitely don't want to trigger these taxable events before you have to or before you want to. Exactly. Accidentally getting that tax bill is never a fun time. <laughs> 
Exactly. Yeah. And like, you know, along with that, you'd want to do it just like you would with a regular investment, like, you know, an IRA, you'd want to make sure that you don't pull it into an account first before you put it into another IRA. You would want to make that transfer happen seamlessly from one account into the other investment account. Otherwise you would trigger that tax event. Gotcha. So dodge the taxes, people. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's, I had a, a accounting professor. I got my degree in finance, but you have to take your accounting classes as well. I had an accounting professor that really loved saying, remember kids, tax avoidance is legal, tax evasion is illegal. <laughs> that's right, that's right. That's the spirit. Subtle difference. <laughs> that's right. It's a subtle, it's a difference between, oh, you're putting money in a 401k, therefore you're not paying taxes on it yet, versus, hmm, I'm going to underreport what I earned. Exactly. exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very slight difference, but... You can ask Wesley Snipes or MC Hammer. They'll they'll tell you the difference. <laughs> <laughs> they'll get you one day. But uh, so now that we've covered, I think, two of the biggest things here, typically people go for either real estate or investments or some mix of the two. So I think now that we've gotten a good base here, I actually have a couple military friends, which I am not in the military because I cannot do a two mile within 10 minutes to save my life. So I actually have a couple friends in the military that reached out to me and were like, hey, do an episode on military finances. And I have no clue about military finances. Therefore, we have our wonderful guests here. So what I have planned is that I have a list of questions that I would like to ask our dear guest and see if we can get some solid opinions here. So I do need to throw out there that while Andrew and Emily are active duty and formerly in the military, their beliefs are not necessarily representative of the U.S. government or the Department of Defense. All their opinions and thoughts are their own. However, they've been through this before. So if you're newly in the service or if you're someone who maybe never paid attention in training sessions or if they don't have training sessions, I don't know because I'm not in, but that's what we're here for. We're here for a personal experience, not necessarily full recommendations of this is what you need to do or this is what you should do. So with that being said, Andrew, Emily, y'all ready for some fun questions? I'm ready. Far away. Let's do this. Okay, so the first one we have here is what is the best short-term way to invest my money while out on deployment? Yeah, so I guess this kind of depends on if you're going into a combat deployment or not. Inside of a combat deployment, it's the SDP, that's the Savings Deposit Program. So this is um, established to provide members of the uniformed services that are serving in designated combat zones. And that's the important piece of it, right? It needs to be a designated combat zone. Just because you're coming under fire or you're acting inside of an advisory capacity inside of a space where there may be combat happening, unless it's a place that it's a combat zone, it doesn't apply. So that's something to note. But along with that, if you're inside of that combat zone, you can build your financial savings at a really wonderful percent. It's actually pretty great. So you can put up to $10,000 into this account and you can earn 10% interest on it annually. Now it is, you know, an annual compounding number, but as opposed to like, let's say monthly, but still so easy, you know, easy stuff there. If you put in $10,000 that was going to sit inside of a savings account anyway, you're going to get a thousand bucks back for free for doing nothing other than just having it in this account while you're deployed for a year. So obviously any fraction of that is, you know, how much you would get back from it, which is pretty great, I think, in my opinion. I think that that's a really great way to do it inside of a short period short of time. Term, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, you have to be receiving hostile fire pay. So that's the way that they determine if it's that combat area or not. So that hostile fire pay is part of it. The other piece of this that's kind of important to note is that you need to be deployed for at least 30 consecutive days. 
it starts to take effect the day after, and that's how many months you get to count. So if you're on a 12-month deployment, which almost always gets rolled into a 13 to 15-month deployment, you know, you'll still probably get the full 12 months. But if you are doing a six-month deployment, you can't start until the 31st day. You're only going to get the compound interest for five months. But still, that's highly, you know, it's just it's much more money then you're going to get, if you just put it inside of even a high interest savings account, like you're not going to touch a 10% return anywhere else. That's completely risk-free, which I think is pretty great. Also, the other thing is if you serve at least one day in each of three consecutive months, then on the start of the fourth month, you are also eligible to start earning in this program. So there are some folks I know who are pilots who would be able to go into these hostile fire zones and get their pay only spending like two or three days there at a time. And then they would get to like come and spend the rest of their deployment somewhere else. But they would also get to take advantage of this program, which, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. (laughs) So that's probably the big one. Yeah, the DOD savings deposit program. Yeah, so that's one. And then if you're not in a combat location, you can take advantage of a couple other things if you wanted to go into. Well, honestly, going back just a little, figuring out ways that you can save money while you're on deployment in order to, even if you're not investing it during the deployment, investing that money when you return can help you out down the road as well. For instance, if you are single or even if you're just able to reduce the economic draw on your own finances stateside while you're deployed, you can take all that money. It ends up being pretty sizable sometimes. And then roll, instead of buying the new car when you get home, investing that into even one of the traditional vehicles that we spoke about earlier. Yeah. So kind of an easy way to imagine this is let's say, especially if you're single, so you don't have, you know, kids or somebody that's back at home that needs to be inside of a domicile, right? You can go ahead and get out of renting a place for six to 12 months. Just have a buddy, you and a buddy that's deploying together. You can put all of your stuff inside of a storage facility. And now you guys are splitting the cost of a hundred bucks per month, as opposed to each of you spending 900 bucks per month on an apartment. Not only that, you can also reduce additional expenses because you're deployed. They'll put holds on all of your utilities. So everything from internet to gas and water and electricity, all of these things, you can let them know that you're going to be deployed. So if you have to keep your place going, you can have them just basically put it all on on hold, which is nice because then six months later, all of that money you know, is utility money that you didn't have to have in place and it was just squared away for you. So you have this big chunk of money that you can invest somewhere else. And one of those places would be the TSP. So kind of a fun fact. So for a Roth TSP, right, because it's also set up like traditional or Roth, you can go in and do that. The Roth TSP, the limit is, drum roll, please. $17,500. Yeah, not $5,500. So depending on your kind of your tax picture, some people prefer traditional because they can defer those taxes, but we're at a 30-year historic low for taxes. There's probably a point when those are going to go back up. I would suspect it's going to be soon. So, you know, if you can do that now, pay those taxes, get there now, then you can just access everything that grows off of that tax-free, which is awesome. And that's a really big number. So I also would recommend putting it in there if you can, like load that up. So get as much into the SDP, just get that free money. And then the next thing being like load up as much as you can inside of the Roth TSP. And one of the ways that you can do that is by limiting all of those expenses elsewhere while you deploy. In my opinion, if you're looking for basically short-term cash outs at the end of a deployment, the best place to put it other than just 
maybe a, a normal CD would be throw it at any debt that you have. Yes, if debt. You can debt lower, first, actually. lower your debt, lower your debt, lower your debt. If you have any, if you're, if you're still paying a car payment, student loans, student loans, for goodness sakes, right? Use that money to pay down the debt because that is going to increase your earning ability down the road. Absolutely agree. Now, I do have a couple questions here because we did kind of go over a lot and I'm sitting here typing in notes quietly so I'm not click clacking while y'all are talking. So the STP, I think y'all called it, the account where you can get 10% interest, is that a kind of a glorified savings account or is that like an investment account where like that money is locked up to where it has to, so kind of like with the TSP or a 401k, it has to stay in or you get some kind of penalty or is it just a savings account where you get an absurdly high interest rate? Yeah, it's just the latter there. It's an absurdly high interest rate on a savings account. Zero risk. Zero risk. And then you can just use that money for whatever. That's right. Yep. yep. You just, as soon as, and it actually just comes right back to you automatically. So the way that it works is say, you know, like I was deployed to Afghanistan. So on day 31, I had the full 10,000. I was ready to go. I went over to finance and I said this day, because it's whatever day you go over there. So you have to like go in and opt in as soon as you can. So on day 31, I just done like a 22 hour mission. I'm like, Hey, I want to opt in to the SDP. And then finance goes through and they do their little thing and they give you confirmation saying that you've been opted in and the day that you opted in. And then after you're done after the conclusion. So that's nice too. So it's not even like, Oh, you're going to be here for six months, but then it gets extended because I don't know, Corona. So you're extended till like nine months, that extra three months, you're still building up that interest, it doesn't just end. You don't have to like continue to opt in, which is awesome. So then as soon as you're done getting hostile fire pay, finance sees that, they do all their little accounting, figure out exactly how much you earned based off of that super awesome 10%. And then all that money just, you know, magically all of it just reappears, the 10,000 plus everything you earned back into your account. And it's any number up to 10,000. So if you can only do 500 bucks, do that, you're still making free money, you know? So even if you can't do the full amount, you know, like it's, it's much higher than it would be sitting in any other high interest savings account over that period. Exactly. Okay. And, and a note for posterity here that I feel the need to include, because sometimes I see this happen on other podcasts. So we're saying you can get a 10% rate right now. I am a banker. I will raise my hand and say that I can tell you that right now, a high interest savings account, you might get 2%, maybe two and a half. So we're saying with the rate environment being 2% or 2.5 being the best you can get right now, you can get 10 with this. Yep, it's congressionally mandated. If you are getting hostile fire pay, you are eligible for this and you get a 10% return. It's pretty unbelievable. Shoot, I'd take it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's just nice because it's, you know, for shorter periods of time. So it's nice to know that you're going to get a guaranteed 10% return up to $10,000 put into the account over, you know, six months nine months, 12 months, even if you're there for three months, you know, like you're going to get money back that you didn't have when you first put it into the account. Absolutely. Okay. Let's go on to our next question here. So the next question we have on the list is how does getting benefits work with service members only having so much time as quote active duty? Yeah. So this has to do with title 10 orders. So going from like title 32, which is kind of your state to title 10. Now, there's kind of some weird things that go along with this, right? So I'm not going to break down too much of it just because we weren't guard or reserves. My stepmom was, and I actually talked to her a little bit about this question ahead of time. So 
In many cases, Title 32 can also qualify you for federal service, depending on what's being done. So let's say, for example, that the guards called up because there was a hurricane and it was a emergency declaration. So the emergency declaration qualifies you for federal aid. That federal aid, even though you're technically on Title 32, then makes you like a federal employee because you're acting in service to the emergency order. There's like some crazy stuff like that. So I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much. But if you're deploying your Title 10, and then you're going to receive the exact same benefits and service credit as a federal active duty service member because you're that federal employee. So all of the same ones um, to include your active duty ID card, you know, type things. So think education, leave, base privileges, health care, not just for you, but also for your family. So that's important, too. If you have anybody back home, you know, married kids, they're all of a sudden eligible for TRICARE Prime versus, you know, whatever else that you had. And TRICARE Prime, you know, everything's free. So you have to be inside of the network, but it can be a real benefit, you know, if something unexpected comes up. So I don't really have a lot extra. Do you want to add anything to that? No, that's the biggest thing. If you're on Title 10 orders, you get all the same benefits as active duty. So everything that we just spoke about previously, you can take advantage of yourself while you're deployed on, on Title 10 orders, whether you're, if you're a guard or reserve. And then I think the healthcare aspect benefit deserves another another stomp on, on it. So if you know you're going to be activated on Title 10 orders and you have a family, it's incumbent to make a plan to immediately enroll into TRICARE Prime uh, when you depart. And that'll, that will that can prove extremely beneficial. Yeah, so make sure that they've got those a copy of those orders. But otherwise, the benefits end up being the same. And I want to say that there's also some time limits on some of these things. So I want to say for combat, it's automatic. So if you're going to a combat location, the minute that you're on Title 10, you're eligible for everything. With other types of deployments, I want to say it first takes 30 days. And then on the 31st day, then you're eligible for all the things as well. You have some access for yourself and then everything kicks in. Um, I'd have to double check those days, but basically that's the gist of it. So, you know, just get all of your ducks in a row, see the different you know, benefits that you want to use. And then basically, as soon as you're eligible for a deployment, then you should be eligible to access all of those benefits. Yeah, big overarching note to any active guard or reserve listening is if you know you're going on, on a deployment, talk to your commander about maybe bringing in a finance rep to discuss all these options for you and maybe be there to assist in coming up with a plan. Because most bases have the facilities to do such a thing and can be tremendously beneficial to the unit that you're a part of. Yeah. So like for the Navy, it's fleet and family. For the Air Force, it's the Airman Readiness Center. Um, so all of those things. You want to just pull in a representative from those because they have a lot of resources yeah. and they're going to have a lot of these little nuanced pieces that if somebody has a question, they'll be able to provide them with the right resource. Especially depending on where you're getting deployed to. So once again, if you know you're getting deployed, talk to your commander about getting a representative from one of these agencies to your unit to discuss all these options and then go seek that person out to set up a plan. Sounds perfect. So remember, guys, it's always best to reach out to somebody and get the specifics for your situation. Podcasts are fantastic for general advice. But when it comes down to your specific circumstances, it's always best to reach out, especially when these resources are openly available for you. Exactly. And like I said, per service, you know, there's different benefits that you get like on the bases versus off. There, there's all sorts of different programs that are available for families. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's important to look into that because if, you know, like I said, if you're with the Navy, the fleet and family might have something that's totally different for, um, you know, like the Army representative. So, you know, those kinds of things are going to be useful to you, but you don't know what you don't know. So. 
absolutely. And y'all brought up active duty reserve or national guard. And I think this next question tees that up quite nicely. So our next one that was submitted was, is it still a good idea to be contributing to the thrift savings plan? If my civilian career has a 401k for me? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely do it. So, you know, there's a couple things. 401ks can be really good. Sometimes they're not that great, you know, depending on the funds that are available or however much employer matching there is. So the TSP now, like I said, you've got the Roth version, which is up to 17.5, which is pretty great. So, you know, my recommendation is to do that. And then also, you know, when you're looking at the different funds that are in the TSP, you have a ton of flexibility and, you know, they're all legitimate because the government put them together, right? So <laughs> so the funds are really great, actually. I've had, gosh, probably anywhere between like 12 and 25% return on mine since putting it into the funds that yep. I wanted them to be in once I realized that I shouldn't have it in just a government fund. So that was a waste of about three years because uh, I didn't really If only we know had sought this, someone out. I didn't, yeah, if only. Uh, if only we had sought someone out. Yeah, and then <laughs> someone's like, oh, you know, you can do it this way. Oh, can we? Oh, and just, you know, like eyes open. So yes, I would definitely recommend it because you can do both, you know, use as many investment vehicles as you have available to you. TSPs, like, you know, really easily accessed. And it's great because now you also have employer matching. So I think we were going to, you know, talk a little bit about the blended retirement system later. So I don't get too much into it now, but the BRS is a way to kind of match what other employers are doing with 401k. And so everything that you match, like I said, we'll talk a little bit more about the matching piece of it, but on top of being able to take advantage of like, you know, this, this huge threshold for like the Roth TSP, you also get an employer match. So do that because you're eligible to do that, you know, <laughs> at the same time, if you have a 401k, do the 401k. Just I mean, determine how much you want to distribute between the two. So you may, if you're going to get better returns and you're able to put in more, that's better tax advantage for your situation into one versus the other you know, take advantage of that first and then put whatever else you have available to you in the other vehicle. Just use use all the vehicles available to you if you can. So you had mentioned that we're going to talk about the blended retirement system coming up. And I tell you what, that you must be able to see the future because that is the next question. The next submitted question we have is, should I go for the new blended retirement system? You don't have a choice if you entered active duty after 2018. Yeah, so the way the BRS works you could opt in to it if you were, you know, in the military already through December 31st of 2017. And then starting on the 1st of January in 2018, if you were a part of the legacy retirement system, so it's called high three, meaning that you get paid basically like a like an average of the highest three. So the way that the high three retirement works is different than the blended retirement system. And so you were automatically into the legacy high three system unless you opted in. If you joined after January 1st, 2018, then you're automatically part of BRS. So you don't have a choice. So it just kind of depends. Like if you haven't opted in already, then your legacy. And then if you came into service after the 1st of January in 2018, then your BRS. So actually there is no choice anymore. Yeah, but let's talk about <laughs> why you might like BRS, you know, if you're BRS. So it sucks if you like listen to this and you're like, oh, I definitely should have done that. But, you know, it's okay. No, don't worry about it. Don't worry about they it. Both, they both have adva had, had advantages. They do, yeah. And so the biggest thing with the blended retirement system is that they kind of created it because they wanted to allow, to basically incentivize folks to stay for longer periods of time that wouldn't necessarily stay up to 20. So if you're in the legacy system, 
staying in the legacy retirement plan, if you're planning to stay for the full 20 years, is the better option. You're going to get paid more money over time. But if you are going to serve anything less than 20 years, which is the vast majority of military members, then BRS lets you walk away with something. And it lets you walk away with the employer match. And so what's nice about that is basically the way that it works out is it's through the TSP and it's just like a 401k. And so you go into your TSP and you choose which fund that you want. And then you can contribute whatever percentage of your paycheck that you want. And the government will match up to 4%. Plus you get a 1% automatic contribution, which means that they'll really contribute up to 5%. And then, you know, after that, it's whatever your percentage is plus that 5%. So if I am contributing 3%, then I get the matching from the employer, which is three, plus my service 1%, you know, so that's three plus three plus one, which is 7%. So 7% of my paycheck, of my paycheck was 7% of like my paycheck's worth is now being invested into the fund of my choice, which is pretty good. And then if it was, let's say I was putting in 10%, they'll only go up to four, but I also get the 1% service. And so what I get is, you know, my 10% plus the 5% from the DOD. So I get a full 15% going into the fund of my choice. So it's actually pretty decent. You know, I mean, that's, that's not bad, you know, and so you can act and depending on the fund, it grows pretty well over time and you can potentially have quite a bit more money coming to you over time, but it also requires active management. So one thing too, about staying the full 20, you kind of get a guaranteed pension. That's a percentage of whatever it was that you were making off of those high three. And so that was beneficial for some just because it was a little bit simpler as well. Okay. So short answer, you don't get a choice, but there's some benefits either way. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lordy. Okay. So this is the last question we have. And I think this one might be even easier than that one. So will having a military pension affect social security benefits? Uh, No. Uh, in a nutshell, it does not affect you have been paying into Social Security just like you would have in any other job. And so when you reach retirement age at 65 years old, you can start drawing on Social Security. That, yeah, that's... That, that, that's it. And the, the best way to take a look at that and know that that's true is to look at your leave and earning statement uh, at the end of every month. So look at your uh, look at your pay stub at the end of every month and you'll see that a certain amount is being withdrawn for Social Security. And Social Security is not part of a military pension. So that money is not going towards your pension. So let's say you're 18 years old, you serve your 20, you are now retired at 38. And that's pretty great because it's, you know, 50% of whatever you were making at the end of your service. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, roughly. Um, And so when you're looking at that, you know, like you can start making that every single month, right up until you're 65, you can't access social security early, you know, but you could getting that, you know, pension all the way up through 65 and then also get social security benefits. Yep. So it'll just be additive at 65. Exactly. Or 62 if you or decide to pull it early. Yeah, whatever. Well, we do love double dipping here. Yeah. We do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we've actually reached the end of our list of submitted questions. So I just have one for you guys. And that is maybe before we go, what is maybe the one biggest piece of advice y'all have for active duty or even reserve service members that are trying to manage their finances or maybe improve on their finances? There are a ton of financial resources. It is a benefit to the Department of Defense to have their folks 
be financially solvent because when you're not, that's when issues happen. You become distracted. You can cause errors that can kill people or worse, you know, you're looking for money. And so you become a national security risk. So they've invested a lot of time and effort and resources and literature and tools and opportunities to make sure that, you know, even with limited income, just because the military, that you can really take advantage and max that out, right? Take advantage of all the benefits that come along with it and all of the different resources that can kind of set you up for success and give you that foundation that'll just really set you apart. It's one of those things where it kind of feels like a slog when you're in the middle of it and you're learning so much at the beginning of your military career because it's it's just so much that it can seem kind of cumbersome to try to go out of your way to learn something more. But a lot of folks really want to help with that. And so you have a pretty great finance office that's going to be able to help you out. And then also with those family services, they can help you set up entire plans, how to budget. They can give you, I mean, just all sorts of different templates and things like that for you to use. So you don't even have to create any of the stuff from scratch. They can show you how to use it. They can just send it over to you. And they're excited to do it. Like they get really excited about it. (laughs) So, you know, there are a bunch of finance nerds over there. Take advantage of the experts that are available to you. Yeah. And by that, I mean, actively seek them out and schedule with them at whatever rate you want, whether it's monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, or even just annually, that's fine. But just to take a nice hard look at your finances, your income, your debt, evaluate your goals so you know where you want to put your money so that you're not just throwing it around aimlessly so that they can help you to achieve those goals down the road. Find the experts. They're there but it's up to you to go get them. Absolutely, 100% agree. So the last thing I have for you guys is where can my audience find out more about you guys? I know we have the podcast, but do y'all have a website or just where else can my audience connect with you? Absolutely. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter at 1000 underscore days to or you can go to the number 1000daystofy.com and you can learn a little more about us and our journey and also hear our episodes. And then also find some of the tools that we've been using to count down to five and get our debt pretty much down to zero. Well, all righty. That sounds fantastic. And I got to say, personally, thank you guys so much for being here. This was very educational for me because, again, I know nothing about military finances. And I know especially this is going to help some of my friends and other service members that maybe didn't get it the first time because they do give you a whole lot of training right there at the beginning. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Fire hose. Yeah. So thank you guys so much for your service. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. For everyone at home listening, all the links for everything they mentioned will be in the description below, including everything for their pages, their contacts, their websites. Everything is going to be there below. Thank you so much for being here. And for all of you at home, I'll see you guys next week.